Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone and welcome to the next episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast. I'm very happy today to be talking to a long-time friend from social media who we've never actually spoken in person or met in person, but we've talked for many years, mainly about his photography. Um, and I think it started out on Twitter and we moved over to Instagram, like all the cool kids these days. Um, he's a talented photographer. He's a, a very talented naturalist, a knowledgeable naturalist. And his day job is a ranger for the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust in Washington in Northumberland. David Dinsley, um, the owner of Nature Northeast Social Media, which is a fantastic a collection of, of wildlife photography and uh, videography. So David, thank you very much for joining me tonight. It's a pleasure to, to finally get together for this long awaited chat. Yeah, thanks very much, Sean. Really appreciate it. No worries. Um, so as I said, we first started chatting, I think, about your your nature photography. Um, you've got a, a great eye and um, I really enjoy it. But where did that come from? How did you get started in, in photography? Is it a long time thing? Uh, yeah, firstly, thank you. Um, secondly, so it started when I was working with Durham Wildlife Trust and one of my colleagues just so happened to be using his brother-in-law's camera for taking just a few shots. He was just kind of playing around with the camera. But before that, during me, so I was I was running a blog at the time. And when I was taking photos, I was taking them through binoculars, through my telescope. And I yeah. thought, well, why not get a camera? So I got the camera. It's kind of just rolled on from there. So you start you did you started fairly late then uh, in life. It wasn't something that you've always done. No, no, it's it's fairly recent. It's it's probably been the past six years, six years or so that I've actually been doing it, and maybe the past four that I've really been trying to sort of focus on it. Brilliant. And did you do any courses, or just kind of read some books, or how did you get into it in terms of? getting results and, and improving just kind of learning as a as i went along really obviously youtube is a pretty fantastic resource to do that kind of thing these days there's videos on everything so yeah i yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll use that quite a bit but yeah no no workshop or anything just kind of going with the flow and learning as i went along yeah very good well it's worked yeah. um <laughs> i have to say i have to say i've been pretty jealous of some of your photos i'm like how the hell does he do that all the time um Big lens and being the right place in the right time are, are a good start, right? Yeah, it's, to be honest, there's sometimes you, you hit unlucky, but it's it's not very yeah. common. You've got to employ a bit of tactic. You've got to employ field craft to find certain yeah. species. You can't just expect to go out into the wild and get a really good shot. I mean, I'm really critical about my own photography, so I'm never happy with my shot. But we yeah. all are, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, to go out into the wild and get an amazing shot really doesn't happen very often uh to, you've, you've got to know your species time of day is a thing location um yeah. it's basically the perfect storm of bringing everything together and then yeah. hoping that it works in the end yeah i said that somewhat sarcastically because i do hear that a lot with people you know <laughs> um i have a good few photographer friends and they're always like it's not the bloody size of the lens <laughs> <laughs> um although i am jealous of the size of your lens i will be honest <laughs> Um, yeah, as you say, I think one of the things that I 
really love or enjoy about your uh, your social media and what you do, especially some of the videos you do, are you give that background kind of insight into what goes into taking a great picture. And you talk about the biology and the, the behavior of the species and the field craft required to, to get up close and personal for that image. Um, so it's a really useful thing for any aspiring wildlife photographers um, to have a look at. So obviously you've told a story about how you, you know, kind of came to the conclusion, okay, I need, I need a better camera to do this. So it was probably always wildlife that you were interested in photog- photographing, was it? Absolutely. Yeah, it was, all, it, was always, it was always wildlife. And like I mentioned, it stemmed from me taking photos with my phone through my optics and then just translating yeah. that into just getting rid of the phone and just, just using my, uh, my camera. But it, it, was, yeah. it was to sort of diarise any local bird sightings to start with, really. And now yeah. it is just wildlife, but it's kind of any wildlife now. Yeah. And were you always interested in wildlife as a kid growing up or yeah. where did it come from? No, always interested in wildlife since a young age. It's sort of that cliched story of, you know, my granddad taking us out and my parents taking us out to various yeah. woods and rock pooling and doing that kind of thing. And from there, it just kind of, it's kind of stuck with us forever. Um, when I was maybe in my teenage years, through the early twenties, it dropped off a bit, but it, it was always there. You got you got a bit distracted then, yeah. <laughs> yeah <just a> little bit. <laughs> we all go through that again as well, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, some other priorities come up in your in your teenage years. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sort of we'll say no more. I'm embarrassing you. I think. <laughs> yeah. Um. Why Why do you love wildlife photography so much? Bit of a basic question, but what does what is it that that kind of makes you enjoy it so much it's the unpredictability of it it's you know it's it's wildlife photography so it's 95 percent of the time it's outdoors different weathers different species different times of year it's just so variable and there's so much uh, there's so much of a you know a blank canvas for you to go out there and photograph british wildlife that there's yeah. so much to take in you know there's certain times of year there's migrating bird species then there's the dragonfly season it's just everything's there's always something to it's always about. changing isn't it's it yeah. yeah 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 and what about the kind of getting off grid because you do go away like for you know a couple of days camping at a time and stuff don't you yeah so i like to i like to try and go into the more wild areas for extend, extended spells um camping because you know I, I love camping i was at mole yeah. last year for it was nine days wild camping and, oh, were you? Yeah, and that was just amazing. Otters and eagles and hen harriers. And, yeah, I've not been. I'd love to go there. Gotta go. Gotta go. Yeah, yeah. Once these restrictions lift. <laughs> There's so much to do when these restrictions lift. <laughs> well, speaking of that, actually, um, how are you coping with being confined indoors now well, during well, lockdown? Yeah, well, I spend, when I'm not at work, I spend most of my time outdoors and I work outdoors. So it's it's a bit of a struggle. I'm not used to being cooped up as much as I am. Um, yeah, but it's, it's you, it needs to be done. So I'm just kind of going with the flow and editing old photos, playing a bit more guitar, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. You're not climbing the walls just yet. Oh, no, no I'm not climbing the walls. That's still happening. <laughs> All right, I feel your pain. I feel your pain. Um, I think for me, some of the the reason I was attracted, I suppose, to your your um, Nature Northeast, which is your main kind of um, photography portfolio, I suppose, um, account was the diversity of species you have that I just wouldn't see down here in London. So Mm. things like seabirds and seals and otters and all sorts of stuff that make me very, very jealous. But um, I've talked to you 
at length about the one species that makes me very jealous, which is what I what I like to call my nemesis bird. Yeah, the water rail. Oh yeah, <laughs> you've had a fantastic <laughs> look with water rails, which are like a stupidly secretive little. Uh, I won't say you know what I really want to call them, but <laughs> I've they've eluded me for years. I've heard them. They've been literally calling like you know two meters from me in dense reed beds or under a bridge one time I was like where the hell is this little bird yeah. well you've had some fantastic shots of water rails how did you manage that it's so like you say water rails can be a really secretive and frustrating species to photograph you'll occasionally get individuals that can be approachable that can be used to people but it's it's uncommon for for me yeah I've got a location in the northeast that I go to and they're quite used to people because there's a little bit of sort of a sort of a gorilla bird watching element to it where some local birders set their own feeders up and those feeders have been up for possibly 15 years, maybe more. So birds, oh, right. yeah, birds are quite used to people and this sort of feeder setup is in a reed bed. Yeah. As in bird feeders for any birds or specifically targeted at water rails? I think it's for any bird, really, because, I mean, they're quite elevated, but they're above water. So what you get is you get the water okay. coming in and then picking up anything from underneath. And they've built up sort of the okay. adaption to be used to people. So they can yeah. be ridiculously close at times, yeah. And is there a hide there or is, are you just photographing them from the bank or what? There's a small willow screen, but if you're not sat behind the screen, they'll still sometimes come up to you, especially in the winter time when there's less food. They'll come up to you. They'll come up to you. Not right up to you, but I've had them within <laughs> five feet. So I oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, geez. <laughs> Way to make me jealous even more. <laughs> um, what What would be your favorite species to photograph? Do you have any? That's a good question. Um, it's It's got to be birds. I mean, my feed is built up mostly of birds. Uh, yeah. oh, but they're just more conspicuous, aren't they, so that are easier to to get get a good view of i guess yeah and birds have always been kind of my go-to besides amphibians and reptiles yeah but it's, it's probably got to be owls i would have thought i'm really oh yeah you've really got some fantastic owls. shots of owls yeah short-eared any owls to be honest yeah any long yeah. owls especially i think they've got a sort of a an ethereal charm much like a thorny owl but they're obviously harder to find I was going to say they're another um, frustratingly difficult bird to locate, even even though they're quite widespread and, and relatively um, common. They're just very elusive, aren't they? And you wouldn't know they're there. Yeah, and they can, you know, they have the tendency to to roost in a spot that can, you know, potentially just have that one branch going over the face, which just takes away from the ruins photo. your photograph. Ruins the photo, but that's that's <laughs> an issue, so just go with it. Bloody inconsiderate owls, huh? <laughs> Oh, brilliant. And come here with, you, you mentioned your blog, was that just a kind of a nature blog or was that the early stages of your kind of nature northeast um, that, yeah, that was, blog? That was one of the um, the early stages of nature northeast. It was just my way of sort of getting into the online burden community, really. Yeah. I started that up to say species I'd seen, any rarities, patch reports, that kind of thing. Um, and from there, nature northeast grew, but it wasn't originally called nature northeast. Okay. And what were the aims for it, or was it just somewhere to document your your photography? Or well, when I first started, I'd noticed that quite a few birders were local birders were using Twitter to report the site. Yeah. And when I first started, it was called the Rock and Roll Twitcher, 
and I went under that kind of pseudonym. Okay. Yeah, because the people I worked with at the time weren't very forgiving to people that were into nature, so I kind of wanted to be a bit incognito. Incognito. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was rock and roll Twitcher for a bit, and then I thought, well, I'm not actually a Twitcher. I don't really go and Twitch rare birds. If they're in, no. If there's one in the area, I might go and see it, but I'm not really a Twitcher. So I thought, well, what can I change it to? And I thought, nature northeast, because I think it's cool. Northeast nature, and I thought, nah. So I just went with nature northeast after that, and it's it's kind of just stuck. Yeah, and it's grown massively, isn't it? For anyone um, listening, I often, you know, start talking in random conversations about a bird or something, and people are like, kind of, you know, looking at me oddly and thinking how do you know so much about birds or whatever? And invariably, if they don't know much about it, they say, oh, so you're a twitcher then. But there's yeah. there's a big distinction, isn't there, between someone who just enjoys watching birds or is a bird watcher and a twitcher. Do you want to explain to the listeners what that is? So if you're a, if you're a twitcher, you're somebody that will go and see a rare bird that's arrived, whether it's local or if it's anywhere in the UK, and you'll rush to see it because you, you want to see so many birds in a year. And... That's that's your thing. You're basically basically a lister, so you want to get as many it's rare keep birds. Keeping lists and numbers, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bit like it's kind of like being a train spotter, if I'm honest. Just yeah, cold. it has a bad, it has a reputation of being a little bit anoraki, doesn't it? It does, it does. And I suppose if you're a bird watcher or slash naturalist, you're just somebody that enjoys sort of the natural world. That's the way I've always took that. Me too. And it's not really, for me, it's not really about birds. And my dad is a bird watcher and he, he says he got into it in some respects because of me, because I wasn't interested in sport as a kid. And, you know, I wanted to be out in nature and going and, you know, buying me a pair of binoculars and bringing me to see birds was a way of getting out in nature. But to me, that's just as much part of it. I'm not really, I wouldn't consider myself a bird watcher. I just like being around nature. And oftentimes, you're drawn to birds because they're like the most obvious living things there in front of you, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it's yeah. very easy to be put into, a, into brackets when it comes to this kind of thing. You're a twitch, yeah. you're a birder. I'm just somebody, yeah. Who, I mean, yeah, it's mostly birds, but I just appreciate the entire natural world and all elements yeah. of it. A, gen- a generalist naturalist. Yeah, yeah, we'll go with that. Yeah. And um, you mentioned your previous work not being so kind to someone who's into into nature, but you're currently in a role that is all about it. So you're a, a ranger. Um, where Whereabouts do you work? I work at the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust, the Washington uh, Centre. Cool. And have you been there long? I've been there going on five years. Yeah, I started October 26th, 2014, 2015, sorry, 2015. Yeah. So that's a nature reserve. There's there's quite a few in the UK um, belonging to W run by WWT, aren't there? That's right. Yeah, um, this is one of the more northern centres. Uh, the it's about 42, 42 hectares in size, and we've got several different types of habitat and yeah, some nice local species, including some rare sort of key breeding species locally. Cool. And the clue is in the name: Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust. So they are focused as a as a charity or a conservation organization on wetlands and the biodiversity in them right and birds in particular yeah so the aims of the wildfowl and wetlands trust yeah, it's, it's basically to conserve and restore and create wetlands um and save wetlands for wildlife and people and inspire people to value wetlands too so and it's global isn't it it's not just in the uk yeah it's it's branching out now there's a lot of work going on in madagascar and russia and China for spoonbilled sandpipers. We're sort of trying to work on wetlands globally as well as yeah, 
within just the UK. Great. And um, being a ranger, was that always kind of the career plan or the path you thought you'd go down or how did that come about? So that's, it's a path that I always wanted to go down when I was younger. I I always wanted to work with wildlife in nature somehow, but I I just didn't know how to do it. And then six years or so ago, I actually left my job to do a, a bursary paid scheme with Durham Wildlife Trust. So I took a chance and saw this as an opportunity to get on board yeah. into this line of work that I want to do. And I went from there to getting a job with the RSPB and then the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust. So yeah, I, it wasn't, it was something that was in the background, but I kind of just ended up doing jobs that were just jobs to pass the time for a few years until I did eventually yeah. actually get sorted and go ahead and do it. What was your previous job that you, that you left? I did a lot of factory work, but the job before, uh, leaving for this line of work, I was working in sort of a, a vehicle garage, refurbishing vehicles and spray painting cars, oh. not cars, sorry, uh, buses, that kind of thing. Yeah, so a bit of a change. <laughs> big change, big change. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I, yeah, again, another reason to be jealous, like working outdoors all the time in nature it must be fantastic. I'm sure there's downsides as well, but what what is a typical day like or is there a typical day as a, as a ranger on a WWT reserve? Yeah, there's... There's a somewhat typical day. It'll start with me checking the perimeter fence line, checking the infrastructure, surveying the the birds on site and the wildlife on site, and then depending on the time of year, uh, working on the habitat or surveying the wildlife on the reserve, leading volunteers, working with corporate groups, doing walks and talks, uh, and sometimes working out out of hours and doing newts or bat surveys. Yeah. And the end of a normal day will be to close the site, make sure it's free of the public. And that's just kind of a general day, but they can be quite variable. Yeah. What parts of it do you most enjoy? Did you like getting stuck into kind of um, habitat management or do you kind of like the people side more or just being able to get out in the mornings and, and um, survey? I, I think I love, I love every element of the job to a certain degree. Working with volunteers is fantastic because you build up that sort of comradeship with uh, these people that are given their time for you which I think is fantastic and a lot of the work we couldn't do as well without them. I also love... Yeah, and there's an educational part in that as well, isn't there? There is, there is, yeah. It's, uh, it's uh, We've had some people that want to, you know, some people are retired that come in, some people want to change their career and get into this line of work. So it's, you're working with a sort of a variety of different people, uh, but it, yeah. everybody bonds over it and it's, it's a really good time. But I also love the, the whole working outside aspect, the, the manual stuff, seeing how the reserve matures over several years. Great. Brilliant. And what kind of um, success has your site had? So obviously a lot of the WWT sites have their kind of like um, renowned or specialist species that use them. But what what's Washington known for? We've had a, an, an amazing increase in avocets on site over the past oh, cool. several years. Yeah, they first came back in the mid, uh, mid-noughties and yeah. they've been doing fantastic year after year. Last year was the only blip, uh, but last year's productivity for waders was quite low overall. So that was a shame. Why is that, you know? We're not quite sure. The um, I believe lesser backback goals are starting to use our site a lot more now. Okay. And they may have been... So they're preying on the chicks, are they? Yeah, yeah, and they'll just they'll just take down multiple chicks in one go. Yeah. They're starting to breed nearby now, which they weren't doing as much of historically. Yeah. Okay. 
So Avocets, that's a pretty good one. And was there something in particular you did to attract them or was it kind of like happy accident of your management? It's just managing the the sluice, the sluice gates and the water levels and improving the the edges, stopping the encroachment of woodland, maintaining yeah. that, that shoreline. And did you provide islands for them to nest on or something? Or? Yeah, we, we increased the amount of shingle islands on site because we also have common turn. So we've increased oh, cool. the expansion of those as well. Yeah. Braille. And any other species that are, you know, nature porn yeah. <laughs> for a photographer? <laughs> Avocets are pretty up there. Avocets are great. Great crested newts. We've built ponds. Oh, cool. And they're, they're increasing. And I've, I've always been fascinated by great crested newts. Um, willow tits as well is one of my favorites. Being oh, yeah. fastest declining bird species, resident bird species. We've got multiple pairs of them on site and I'm working quite heavily to keeping their habitat for them so it doesn't mature too much and maintaining what we've got and hopefully having more overall going forward. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about how you manage habitat for them in a second, but also just to rub it in, you had them in your garden previously, didn't you? I did, I did, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Heck of a garden bird, that, John. <laughs> Bloody hell. Yeah. Amazing. A lot of Twitchers would be showing up if you told them that, would they? <laughs> Yeah, um, but how are you managing habitat for them? They need they need dead wood, if I remember correctly, don't they? To they nest do. in. Yeah, they need um, they need a mix of things that are stupidly stupidly picky birds, considering the the decline. But that's probably because of the decline. So they like to have yeah dead wood, quite wet soils, low canopies, and they don't like to travel too far from where they were sort where they were sort of born and raised they're not a, a species that travel okay. far, so they need corridors to move now we've got many so once like, they're isolated or fragmented in populations they don't recolonize very well is it basically yeah they can go locally extinct if they can't extend the population and move to a suitable habitat so we're, we're just kind of not letting certain areas of woodland mature providing plenty dead wood you know we do tree work on site so if we'll have any timber that is suitable for willow tits. We'll either put that in specially designed boxes or dig them in as stumps or attach them to trees. They, they seem to favour downy birch and silver birch and willow and hawthorn and elder on site. Okay. And I've seen you put up these boxes um, through your social media. Am I right in saying you you put up like a dead trunk and they drill into it, is it? Or you put up wood inside a box kind of pack it in and then they make their own nest tunnel in the dead wood. Is that right? It's a bit of both. So you can put up, you can sort of tie sections of dead wood trees or like I mostly do is you make a specialist box and then you'll sort of whittle down this wood into a rectangle. You put this dead wood into the box and there's a small sort of port, rectangle port near the top. Yeah. And that's their entry point and they'll dig into that and they'll build the chamber within the box in the dead wood. Wow. So they're, yeah, they're almost doing what a woodpecker would do. They're actually taking out the dead wood and making their own little hole in it. Yeah. yeah, they are. Yeah, but with them having such a short bill and not mm. lacking the strength of a woodpecker, they need the dead wood. So it, it needs to be dead and well-rotted, kind of. Yeah, yeah, they couldn't do it into a live tree. They just don't have the, the capacity, the, the power to do it. Great. Cool. Um, the newts are brilliant. We are very lucky in Ealing to have um, a couple of sites with great crested newts as well. Um, so it's one of the kind of regular volunteer task days we do, um, just making sure the ponds that they breed in aren't kind of encroached by willow scrub and, and things, or bulrushes. We have to do a, bit, a good bit of bulrush clearance to keep 
open water in them as well. Um, but they're fantastic little creatures, aren't they? Oh, they're amazing. Like small miniature dragons with a... Little dinosaurs, yeah, yeah. You see them with the crests in the water um, displaying. I went out with one of our members on Ealing Wildlife Group as an ecologist. So we went out and um, surveyed them under his license last year. And just to see the males, like, you know, displaying to the female with their tail and that massive jagged crest, absolutely amazing. Yeah, the beautiful things, beautiful. Yeah. Have you got many reptiles up there? I've seen one lizard once. But in terms of regular reptiles on site i've not seen regular ones in the northeast we've got three main species we've got slow worm common lizard and adder there is report of grass snake but i think they're slowly on the decline if they haven't declined to the point of extinction yeah northumberland's kind of their most, most northern range isn't it yeah yeah so here's where the tables turn, David, okay. and I tell you that, you know, we have grass snakes <laughs> plenty down here. <laughs> this is our so, you know, it's, it's not all it's not all one sided, you know, <laughs> showboating <laughs> um, with your fancy species up in Northumberland. Um, actually, our local WWT site is Barnes, the London Wetland Centre. And that's kind of my local, not local patch, but I do go there quite a lot. I'm a member um, and they have quite a lot of uh, grass snakes. They do. Slow worms and common lizards. Well, yeah. Um, the north-south divide, isn't it, for species? Yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, what about bats? Any any special bats up there? Yeah, we've got uh, we've got the, the staples, you know, the noctule, the soprano pipistrel, but we've also got yeah. the Nathusius's pipistrel. Great, yeah, yeah. Up here they love uh, habitats, don't they? They do. So we've been surveying for those. We've been half trapping with Durham Back Group, trying to track. Yeah how many we'll have on site um, through various methods, which has been interesting, yeah. It hasn't been massively consistent over the past four and a bit years while I've been there, but we have had them and they are there, just not in yeah. great abundance. And you, have you ringed any of them or found any ringed ones? We haven't. We haven't, no. So we work quite closely with um, a member of London Back Group. She's come and done some surveys in Ealing um, for us. And... Um, she recovered one that was ringed in Latvia. Wow. Which is pretty phenomenal that this tiny little bat, it's not much bigger than the commoner soprano pipistrelle, is it? No. Um, but it's migrating all the way from Latvia here to breed and then going back to Eastern Europe to, to hibernate. Pretty impressive. Yeah, it's amazing. When you think of bats, I don't I don't think a lot of people think of them as crossing the, uh, crossing the sea and actually migrating. I know. Amazing little things. Um, any other species are, that are surprised? You've had otters show up fairly recently, haven't you? Yes, the otters seem to appear in waves. We don't always get lots of otter sightings, but then we might have a spell of, you know, t- between two weeks and a month of very regular um, otter sightings, usually around the same time. Yeah. It's always really exciting because if they are consistent, you can almost anticipate when you're going to see them, which is nice to have. Really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And do you think, is it what time of year is it? Is it like youngsters passing through or adults kind of um, trying to find new territories, do you think, or what? It's it's usually, it usually seems to be, it's, see the thing is it's it, it's really variable, to be honest, Sean, because you can get a big it, dog yeah. after a while and then you might get a, a mother with cubs or then you might get a younger one. So it's it's really up and down. Uh, but yeah. The river adjacent to our site is still tidal. So the the seem to favour fishing in the low tide. Yeah, that's a good thing. But yeah, it's easier to see them then as well. Probably is it? Yeah, and they'll come up on the bank, and if you're lucky, it might be next to one of the screens, and they'll be chomping away on a fish. And as long as you 
your profile's not breaking the the bank too much. They'll just quite happily sit there and chomp their fish and then go about the day. Nice, nice job you have. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> um, speaking of perks of the job, you um, you went on a big trip. Was it last year or the year before that yeah, you went? Twenty eighteen. Twenty eighteen. So tell us about that. Where did you go? I went to Arctic Russia to ring Buick Swans. Oh wow! Which was an amazing experience. Yeah. So we were up on the Arctic tundra, at uh, north of Narian Mar on the Pecora Delta, uh, and the mission was to to ring Buick swans, but also if we get any mute swans and hoopa swans, to ring those too. And it was wild. felt like being on the top of the earth, even though yeah. you weren't. It just felt really flat because the land up there was literally just a couple of metres above sea level, if that, in places. It was very serene and quite eerie. And, and how really many of you went? It was just there uh, was just two of us, and there was four Russian colleagues. Two of them worked yeah. on the tundra. One of them was a translator, and the other was a chef. All right, <laughs> important to have nice food on these things. Um, well, you say, you say nice. <laughs> okay, but... <laughs> important to have food. <laughs> important to have food. Yeah, pretty basic, was it? <laughs> it was. It was. It was uh, a lot of tinned reindeer oh. meat, and yeah. A few eggs, which I, I like eggs, yeah. so I'm not complaining. Just, yeah, a lot of bread, that kind of thing. Fuel, it was fuel, not food, right? It was fuel. It was fuel. Yeah, it was. It just added to the to the experience, I think. And there was it was on the downtime because sometimes with the weather, if the weather was a bit rough, you couldn't go onto the sea to catch the swans. So that's where they were. They were gathering on mass, eating the eel okay. grass. Off on, the, on the shallow sea and the water is very shallow it's only in some places up to your knee right. very shallow water so we went out on the sea to catch the birds but sometimes we couldn't do that because of the weather so we could take in the birds and the other wildlife that was yeah. around us. so we had there was an arctic fox den not far from where we were based there were skewers yeah. hanging around there was lots of blue goats it was exceptional and you documented yeah. the whole thing didn't you I did. I made a short, a short uh, video on that, on that trip, which I gave at a presentation I gave about the trip when I came back, and that was a nice sort of diary of it. It's only about ten minutes long. I could have probably made it thirty if I had the time. Or, yeah, but the, I think the trick is, you know, keeping it short is easier than making it long. <laughs> short and impactful is the challenge yeah, a lot of the time, isn't it? Yeah, it is, it is. Um, cool. So Buick swans, just tell us a bit about them. They're they're one of the migratory species of swan that come here along with hoopers, right? They are, yeah. A lot of the hooper swans that come to this country actually come from Ireland, but the, the Buicks come from, yeah. come from Russia. Come from the eastern, uh, the and eastern they're our flyway. least common swan, aren't they? Yes, they are. Yeah, they are. And declining, hence the, the research trip, yeah, which has been going on for... A lot of years with, and do you know what the causes of their decline are? So they're not a hundred percent. I think there's a, a, a sort of a chance that it could be due to potential hunting, but then also potentially climate change. They haven't got to travel as far, so they're not coming down as far south. Okay. They seem to think they're also drifting slightly further east and just staying in mainland Europe and to the east of that, so they don't need to come over to us. So you're doing these population studies at the time they're not in the UK to try and figure out if the if the population is healthy but just has changed its habits, is it? 
Yeah, so the trips happen yeah. in July because the, once the birds have bred, they go onto the, the sea, like I said, to feed, but also because they molt the feathers, they can't fly. So they gather in mass uh, on the water. Okay, for so they're safe from land predators there. They are. And then we come along and we catch them, take them to shore. We'll take biometrics. We'll put a ring on them. We'll also record the, the bill type, what the pattern is. And yeah, put the Darvik ring on. And we've had birds turn up at, um, at this year from my ring and trip. Sorry, last winter there was some birds from the 2018 trip turned up at Welney. So that's one of the other wildfowl. Great. And, uh, yeah. And they're sort of, um, Hoopers and Buicks are sort of an iconic species for WWT anyway. Didn't the, um, was it the founder, um, identified individuals for many years by the patterns on their beak at Slimbridge, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah. They're all sort of like a finger, a fingerprint. They're all unique. It's like their own unique pattern, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, that's brilliant that you, one of the ones you ringed turned up and got reported back. It must be a good feeling. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing feeling. It's, you know, the fruits of your labour kind of coming back. And it's amazing just you think, well, we, we were with that bird on the Arctic tundra and now it's here, all these yeah. miles away from where it was run. Yeah. Crazy, crazy. Um, part of conservation action like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, any kind of low times in that trip? How long were we there for? We were there on the tundra for about 14 days. Low point. So it was pretty terrible when the weather was bad, no? Yeah, the weather was never terrible. It was never really bad. The sea was sometimes choppy, but we did have a really big storm one night. I think in terms of any potential lows, it was just if there was downtime and the weather wasn't nice, say it was really raining. You were just kind yeah. of confined to base, just kind of stuck there and everything was grounded so there wasn't much to see. So you were just kind of sat, sitting there, but it added to the appeal afterwards. I think it added to the stories and, and the charm. Yeah. yeah. And um, how did you catch these ones? So they were caught just from the boat with large nets because, like I say, they couldn't fly, but they're actually incredibly mm. agile. They could dive really quick into the water, much like a tuck. Oh, yeah. Goes, oh, yeah which was quite surprising for a big bird. They'll just disappear in front of you. So we'd wow. catch them in a net and then safely put a jacket on them so they couldn't couldn't hurt themselves. And then we'd take them to shore yeah. and get them released as soon as possible. Yeah, brilliant work. Great. Well, look, I think um, I think that's that's all we have time for. Um, but it's been br- brilliant chatting. Um, where can people find out, David, about your, your... Well, where can they view the Tundra Expedition film, first of all? So that's on my YouTube channel, which if you just type in Nature Northeast on YouTube, it should yeah. come up. Yeah. And the rest of your stuff is all uh, Nature Northeast as well, like Twitter, Instagram, is it? Yeah, across all the, the social platforms, it's Nature Northeast, all one word. All on brand. <laughs> all on brand, all on point. <laughs> yeah, good stuff, good stuff. Right, well, look, I won't keep you any any longer. Um, I need to go get my dinner now and uh, I might you know, have a beer or a glass of wine as well lockdown uh tradition of course of course adoption yeah and i hope um it doesn't last too much longer and keep you indoors climbing the walls for too much longer as well yeah can't wait to get back out there cool thanks for joining me tonight david yeah big thanks sean thank you for having yeah. us on here and uh, when this lockdown lifts i will be at some point making my way up north to see all these water rails and avocets and things <laughs> that i don't get down here yeah. <laughs> all right talk to you soon Thank you. Bye.
Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast with myself, Sean McCormack, produced and edited by Thomas Dinas. If you're enjoying the series so far, I would really appreciate it if you consider donating to our Patreon link below. That will really help us out with producing the podcast and covering the costs involved. See you next episode.